You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm the host today on Tuesday, the 7th of July, Ed Harrison here. I am talking in a second to Dan Russo, who's the chief market strategist at Chaikin Analytics. But first, let's go to Peter Cooper with the news of the day. Thanks, Ed. Today, I want to talk about remittance, when migrant workers send money home to support their families and loved ones, and why it's a critical piece in our understanding of the global economic slump. Remittance has become increasingly commonplace over the past several decades. On the macro scale, remittance payments sent to families from their relatives often is greater than the amount of foreign direct investment in aid from other governments. And thus, many developing nations rely on remittance for their economic stability. However, with labor markets languishing worldwide due to COVID-19, migrant workers are particularly vulnerable to both job losses and the virus itself. The World Bank is projecting remittance payments for low- and middle-income countries to fall by about 19.7% this year, which is the sharpest decline in recent history and the largest drop since the World Bank started recording remittance data in the 80s. The drop in remittance now is four times as large as the drop in remittance that occurred after the Great Financial Crisis. This lifeline has been cut off to those countries and the families that rely on remittance payment to pay for food, mortgages, education, fuel, and numerous other expenses. Of the top 10 remittance routes, most of the overflows originate in the U.S. and flow into India, Mexico, China, the Philippines, Guatemala, and Vietnam. Of these six countries, the Philippines, Guatemala, and Vietnam will experience the most disruption from lack of remittance because of a U.S. labor market that remains volatile and uncertain, and because of how much their economy's GDP is reliant on remittance. For Guatemala, the Philippines, and Vietnam, remittance makes up a part of their GDP by 13.1%, 9.9% and 6.5% respectively. This trickle-down effect through remittance implies that an elevated level of job losses not only hurts residents and citizens of nations like the US, but it has a powerful impact on the global economy. When migrant workers are losing their jobs, becoming sick with COVID-19, and leaving to return to their home countries, we have a deeper understanding as to why the global slump is greater than it appears and will be slower and more painful to recover from. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Peter. So, Dan, uh, good to have you here on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Good to talk to you. It's great to be here, Ed. Thanks for having me. I've been watching the show for a while, so I'm excited to uh, be taking part. Yeah, and I was telling you right before we got on that uh, you know we've had two or three uh, technicians before, technical analysts before. You look at the technical analysis as well. In fact, earlier today we were talking on the telephone. You were telling me that you teach a class in technical analysis. I just thought it would be interesting to tell everyone, you know, how you think about uh, technical analysis because you're a CMT and the class that you teach and, and, you know, what you get out of it that people might not know. 
I teach the class at Baruch College uh, in New York. I've been doing it. Uh, this was my third uh, semester doing it. I'm not a teacher by training, uh, but it's a subject that I'm passionate about. So when the opportunity came along to teach the class, I, I, I jumped at it. And it's you know a basic level technical analysis class, kind of start at the beginning with what is a trend, you know, talk about things like Dow theory and confirmation, and then get into a little bit more of the complex uh, areas of technical analysis. So it's been interesting because I've been doing it for a while, and I think you get into routines, right? You kind of find the, the tools that work for you. So teaching the class, I actually had to go back and revisit a lot of the work that I did when I was earning the CMT designation, and it helped me to uncover some, some new tools to kind of put in, uh, put in the toolbox to use on a daily basis, which has been fun. It's really a good class because it lends itself to not really being theoretical, right? If you're sitting in a traditional finance class and you know you want to learn about time value of money and you want to build a discounted cash flow model, right? A lot of that is, you know, you're looking back at historical data and case studies. For this class, we can just look at things in real time and talk about what's happening in the markets, right? What are the trends in the equity market? What's outperforming? You know, what are the trends in fixed income and commodity markets and kind of see it in real time. So it's kind of interesting. It's, you know, the students will love it. Uh, a lot of them uh, invest for themselves or trade for their own accounts every now and then. It's a night class. I've actually walked around and seen some people pulling up charts of, say, like Bitcoin at uh, <laughs> 7 o'clock at night and seeing if there were any, uh, anything on there that they just learned that they can try to put to good use. So uh, it's really gratifying. I love doing it. I love talking about technical analysis and what's happening in the markets and then kind of bringing it back to what they're learning from a fundamental basis as well, because I'm also an MBA. So uh, I'm not the traditional technician who says, you know, fundamentals don't matter. I do think the fundamentals matter. You know, I do think all else being equal, I'd rather own stock in a good company uh, than a bad company. So for me, I kind of think of it, um, fundamental analysis is kind of what to buy or what to sell and why. And then technical analysis helps you with the timing, position sizing and risk management. So I like to meld the two worlds together. Yeah, very nice explanation. I like that. Uh, that is good. And, you know, especially on a day like today when we saw the Dow, you know, down 400 points and the market yep. seemed to sell off into uh, right at the end of the market. You know, people always get, give a reason why. But, I mean, right before we came on, you were like, you know, it's really about uh, supply and demand, buyers, and there's no, you know, there's no reason per se why. But uh, you, you know, you're looking at the trends. I mean, what is the right. trend right now that you're seeing? So I, I think it's interesting because I really think when you talk about equity markets, especially now, you have to get more specific, mm. right? What's the trend in the S and P 500 right now? I'd call it, you know, up off the March 23rd lows, kind of flat in the near term, right? But what's the trend in, in the NASDAQ, right? The NASDAQ 100. I mean, it's a clear uptrend. We traded at a new high today before fading into the end of the day. So I think when you're talking about equity markets, it really makes sense to kind of drill down and look at relative strength. I spent a, t a lot of time not just looking at what's the trend in the S&P 500, right? That's 500 stocks. There's a huge market out there. Right. So what's outperforming? Right. If the S&P 500 is going sideways, which it essentially has been doing since uh, early June, well, within that framework, there's areas of the market that are working. Think tech, think consumer discretionary, which is largely Amazon. Right. Think uh, communication services. Right. But there was also areas of the market that are starting to fade on a relative basis. Right. A lot of the uh, kind of reflation sectors of the market like energy, 
and industrials and financials have started to stall out. And in the near term, they look like they're beginning to underperform again. So I like to drill down to the next level. And then there are some sectors where it actually makes sense to even take it to the industry level, right? A sector like healthcare, biotech's been on fire, but some of the pharma stocks, not so much. So I think relative strength becomes really important, uh, both from an, in an equity standpoint, but also from a bigger picture asset allocation standpoint, right? I mean, you want to be in what's outperforming, right? You want to be leveraged to the areas of the market that are outperforming, right? For a while, fixed income was the place to be, right? We saw bonds outperforming equities for a time, right? So it makes sense to kind of skew your portfolio towards what's outperforming. And that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, because you're uh, someone who has the mix of fundamental and technical, you can talk about why you think that's happening. What is it? What's the, the macro story, the macro picture that you'd overlay on that to understand why it is that those particular sectors are outperforming right now? That is growth over value, if you will. Yeah, growth over value has been a trend for a while. And I think it makes sense, obviously, even if you're just an equity investor to pay attention to what's going on across asset classes. So one of the key indicators or relationships that I like to look at is the ratio of copper to gold, right? In, if I kind of look at those two commodities as a ratio, one over the other, uh, what you'll see is that copper has been um, lagging gold since, call it the first quarter of 2018. So kind of what does that mean from a bigger picture macroeconomic standpoint? To me, it's it's been a signal of slowing global growth, right? If we think about right. what copper is, industrial metal, widely used throughout the global economy, right? So if things are good and the economy around the world is growing, copper should really be in demand and it should be outperforming gold, which is a precious metal turned to in, in times of uncertainty, right? So that relationship has been in place for a while. So it wasn't just COVID-19 that caused growth to slow down. It accelerated the slowdown to the downside. And I think that what we've seen recently is a counter trend rally within the context of a bigger picture downtrend. So if you look, I sent you the chart, there's a ratio of copper to gold in there. It's been rolling over since early 2018. We've now looked what looks like a counter trend rally below a declining 200 day moving average back to the level where it broke down. And that level I think is important because that was the 2016 lows before the market rallied following the election. And it's also the 2008 lows. So it stands to reason that we're going to see a reversal back to the downside there. The trend to the downside remains in place. So to me, that picks a picture of continuing slowing global growth. Right. Very interesting. And, you know, uh, so the macro view then is obviously if growth is going to continue to slow, then you want to be in the sectors that in that environment. That are actually growing. Right, exactly. And so that's where you get the growth over value. Is that right? Right. So, And you can see it and you see it actually across market caps, too. Right? At Chicken Analytics, we have a quantitative model that we use to rate over 4000 stocks and over 1700 ETFs. Right. So if we kind of look across market caps, whether it's large cap growth, mid cap growth uh, or small cap growth, all of those ETFs uh, for the, the Russell, Russell large, Russell mid, Russell small, all have bullish ETF ratings in our model. And if we look at the same dynamic for the value side of the equation, all of those ETFs are neutral. The growth ETFs are outperforming the broader market. The value ETFs are lagging the broader market. And then you're seeing it at the sector level too, right? We talked about technology 
Uh, you're seeing it in consumer discretionary, which as we said is you know, 25% Amazon, and you're seeing it in comm services, right? Which have you know, you know Facebook and Google and, and the names that are that are working. So when you talk about the market, I really do think you kind of have to broaden your view of what is the market, right? The market is more than just those 500 stocks. And ideally, we like we're trying to help people skirt to the areas of the market that are outperforming. Right. You know, in that context, in terms of outperformance, the question then becomes, what other plays are you looking at in terms of thinking about it from a macro perspective? We're think I'm thinking about uh, currencies. I'm thinking about uh, bonds. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, macro trends like inflation or deflation. I think what you're seeing is, I mean, you've seen, you know, bonds have been doing well, right? So if I kind of drill down further into, into our ETF model, right? If I look at treasury bond ETFs, whether it's TLT for, for long duration, IEF for, for medium duration, or even IEI for something that's shorter duration, those all have bullish or very bullish ratings uh, in our model. And what's interesting to me, and it kind of gets to the next point uh, that we're going to bring up, I'm actually starting to see potential signs of inflation, actually, uh, in the work that I'm doing, right? If we look at a broad basket of commodities, something like the CRB Commodity Index or DBC Commodity ETF, right, starting to rally off of those March lows, five-year, five-year forwards, right? Uh, I sent you a chart of that as well. Right. Starting to move higher, still within the context of a downtrend. So it's early days, but it's something that I'm watching closely because I could, I think we could be close to an inflection point, right? I sent you the chart that I sent over is a weekly chart, and I gave you the 13 week rate of change at the bottom of the chart. And you can see a big spike to the upside and in five year, five year forward inflation expectations. If I kind of take that to the currency markets, right, and look at uh, you know New Zealand dollar relative to the U.S. dollar, Aussie dollar, U.S. dollar, or even CAD U.S. dollar, those are starting to inflect uh, in a way that would signal strengthening against the U.S. dollar. What do all of those have in common? They're commodity currencies, right? So I'm, I think you could potentially be staring at an environment where growth continues to slow. But due to all of the stimulus that we've seen, we could see be seeing an uptick in inflation, which I don't think a lot of people are talking about at this point. Right. Not everyone's talking about that. I have talked to a few people who think that inflation is ticking up. But, you know, obviously, if growth is slowing, most people think then that means that inflation is going to slow at the same time. You have a disinflationary environment. What I thought was interesting when you spelled out specific currencies, Kiwi dollar, Aussie dollar, Canadian dollar that you're talking about inflection points in those specific currencies vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. dollar. Talk to me about right. where those levels are and, and, and why those are important for you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, just kind of, you know, drawing downtrend lines uh, off of highs that incidentally have been in place since 2018 when that copper gold ratio started to roll over. So just drawing a simple trend line uh, across the, the recent highs within that downtrend, we're kind of back at those levels. You know, it's, it's different levels for each of the currencies, but uh, a break through that downtrend line to me would kind of confirm 
this view on the potential for, for rising inflation. And then we have to start to think about what does that mean, right, for the broader equity market. So again, even if you're solely focused on equities, I think it makes sense to be paying attention to a lot of these cross-asset class relationships and pay attention to what's going on. We call it intermarket analysis. I, you know, I have an entire lecture on it. But paying attention to what's going on in other areas of the investment landscape to get a sense for what that could mean for equities. I mean, just kind of take Shake Shack today. Right. right. Okay. Shake Shack came out and just using it as a as a one off example. Right. They came out and they said that their same Shack sales are likely going to be down 49 percent for the second quarter. Right. But how did they get there? Right. Traffic down 60 percent, pricing up 11 percent. Right. right? Yeah. So pr traffic demand down 60 percent, pricing potential inflation up 11 percent to getting gets them to that down 49 comp. So the question is, are these companies going to be able to pass along pricing? Prices, right. Yeah. Right? If we look across the commodity landscape, right, look at a chart of lumber. It's absolutely ripping to the upside. Look at orange juice. Looks like it's bottoming out and moving higher. Even things like, you know, cattle. Um, to me, a lot of people see food. I see input costs. Right. right. So what does that, uh -huh. what does that start to mean for margins, especially as we're getting close to second quarter reporting season? Uh, well, I think more it's interesting a bad things. thing for margins, right? You would think it would be a bad thing for margins, right? So taking the, taking the conversation a step further and, and drilling back down on the fixed income market, right? We talked about treasuries, which in a slowing growth world should continue to do well, right? And our rating bears that out. But if we look at, uh, if, if that is in fact the case, if we're looking at slower growth with rising inflation, I think you would want to skew towards high-grade corporates, right? And if you look at an ETF like LQD, you know, that's bullish within our model, right? That traded at a 52-week high yesterday, completely recouped everything that it lost in the February-March downturn. But if you look at something like high yield, right, HYG or even JNK, uh, not even close to threatening its highs from earlier this year. And incidentally, uh, bearish ratings in our ETF model. Right. So, you know, you start to think about slower demand, right? Lower growth with rising inflation. I mean, what does that do to highly levered companies? And I think that that could be the catalyst for the insolvency events that Raul talks about. Right. And, you know, when you talk about uh, growth over value and how it's played out in, uh, across the equity spectrum, it's almost the same in terms of inflation when you're talking about, and, and also when you add on the layer of lower growth, in the bond market spectrum, you know, higher grade doing better than lower grade. Yep. A, a layer on top of that, the question of uh, what I would call the Fed put. That is, you know, how far is the Fed willing to go in terms of their put? And there's nothing that they've said thus far, even though they've said that they would, uh, you know, buy a percentage of junk ETFs and, and, you know, in a liquidity crisis, they would also buy some fallen angels that they're backstopping. Right. Uh, insolvent companies. The, basically, what they're saying is is that these are companies that are solvent, uh, and we're backstopping them because of liquidity. But insolvent companies, the ones that you're talking about, which is why HYG or JNK would be underperforming, they're not saying, you know, when when bad things happen, we're going to get in those companies. Right. I, I think that's right. And I mean, I think if anything we've learned this year is kind of nothing's off the table. If you will, but I, you know, right. I think that would be, I think that would be a, a, a tough step to take. I'm not saying they can't take it, but I think it would be a tough step to take. But what's interesting is, if you listen to Jerome Powell speak, uh -huh. I mean, 
he doesn't miss a chance to tell everybody that you know we also need help from the fiscal side right right yeah actually if you, i actually just took took a look at a quick chart of the fed's balance sheet and if you kind of squint you can see it rolling over a little bit here uh in the near term but what's interesting to me is that liquid it's a liquidity versus solvency discussion number one but it's still an environment where the market if all you're looking at is the s p 500 can continue to work higher right because i you know this liquidity floods into the market and at the end of the day capital is going to go to where it's treated best right so if growth is continuing to slow and a percentage of of that liquidity makes its way into the equity market where is it going to go likely going to go into the growth areas of the market we'll take a look at the s p 500 um 25 or so in in the top five uh in the top five stocks and you know call it six stocks, right? I, I call it the fan mag, right? Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Netflix, Apple, and Google, right? So the market, if all you're looking at is the S&P 500, can continue to work higher. As a matter of fact, we've kind of carved out some key levels for us. And for us, right, there's support in the S&P 500 at the 3000 level. If you kind of look at that 3000 level, number one, round numbers tend to be psychologically important. Number two, rising 50-day moving average, just getting into that zone around 3,000. The 200-day moving average is at about 30.23. So there's some su solid support, and it's held, right, so far since we've been in this consolidation since the June 9th, June 10th timeframe. I think as long as we're above that level, the S&P 500 can attack its February highs. But if we take a look at the average stock in the market, one of the things that I like to look at is the value line geometric index, right? right. It's essentially the performance of the average stock in the market. That's still 20% off its highs. Or if right. it's uh, highs yeah. of 2020, it's about 25% off its highs, which were reached in 2018. Right. That, that's so interesting that you were saying in 2018, it didn't even get back to its highs in February. So that's that's where we're seeing the outperformance, the differentiation within the markets. Yes, that's exactly right. So I think that with the S&P, everybody watches the S&P. So to me, it becomes the trigger, right? So as long as the S&P 500 is above 3000, I think you can be invested in equities. As a matter of fact, you know we're bullish on equities above 3000. But the question is which equities, right? Mark Chaikin, our, our founder, writes a note for our clients every week. For the past few weeks, he's, he's been laying out the case that the market can work higher, led by these growth companies, right? And he thinks it makes sense, and I agree with his view, to kind of fade these reflation or reopening type stocks, right? The airlines, you know, some, uh, right? Uh, the energy sector, even the financials, right? Take a look at the banks. They're starting to stall out. Uh, in their trend, which kind of brings you to interest rates, right? If you look at a relationship of, say, you know, banks to utilities, that started to work higher, right? 10-year yield kind of lifted its head from below 50 basis points. Now that relationship is starting to roll over once again, which leads me to believe that there's downside in yields, which gets back to a bullish view on treasuries. Right. You know, uh, two things on this. Uh, one is about uh, treasuries. And then I want to go into other spaces that you're looking like uh, Europe or EM and so forth. Uh, on treasuries, how do you think about uh, the inflation part of that? That is, is, is that, you know, if global growth is slowing, 
that's good for treasuries. It's also good for bonds in general, especially high grade. But what about where inflation comes into play? Does that uh, factor into what you think you're going to get in terms of return? Yeah, no, it totally, it definitely does. I, I think it probably makes sense to kind of shorten duration and then maybe look at those high grade corporates, right? So not not the companies that are at risk of an insolvency type event, but right, if you got to kind of if you're going to reach for yield, I think you probably have to do it in a safer way, right? Hence LQD. Uh, with a bullish rating in our model, trading up near up near 52-week highs, right? But uh, you know what else is trading near 52-week highs? TIP, right? The, the TIPS ETF, right? right. So it's kind of interesting that we're at this inflection point uh, with I, with the potential for inflation to pick up here in the midst of continuing slowing global growth. Right. Yes, right. that is very interesting. Yeah, um, that you know, could plays be the out in the commodity market. You mentioned you mentioned kind of other areas of the equity space. If that inflation theme is playing out and we see a lift in commodities, right, you're likely going to start to see some outperformance on the part of something like EEM, right, the Emerging Market ETF, which if I look at its relative strength against the S&P 500, uh, is actually slowly kind of moving to the upside, right? It went from severe underperformance. The intensity of that underperformance has been dampening of late. And by our work is actually on the cusp of starting to outperform relative to U.S. equities. Now, what about uh, Europe and other places like that, like MSCI Europe? How would you, if you're, say, a European investor, or even if you're an American investor and you want to get some sort of global um, uh, mix, how, how would you approach looking at Europe, uh, given the fact that the S&P has outperformed for so long at this point? You know, it's interesting. And I think the S&P outperformance is largely a function of a higher weighting to technology, right? If I kind of look at an ETF like EFG, the MSCI, Europe, Australia, Far East ETF, right? Again, bullishly rated in, in our ETF model, that's actually beginning to outperform as well. So I think for a long time for U.S. investors, having that home country bias made a lot of sense. I think we could be getting to a point, though, now where it does make sense to start to look overseas. I've actually written about this recently. But again, I think you want to skew towards where is the growth, right? And right. the growth is largely going to be a function of the particular countries or indexes weighting towards technology, right? Take a look at something like Chinese technology, uh, CQQQ, right? Massive spike higher of late. It almost looks like it's going parabolic, outperforming, right? What what that's growth though that's that's leverage to technology, right? So uh, just to wrap it up, uh, you, basically what you're saying is 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 that uh, there are two major trends that you want to be looking at. On the one hand, you want to be looking at the continued value over growth uh, that's gonna that you get the or sorry growth over uh, over value growth over value yeah where you get the continued outperformance. On the other side there seems to be an inflection, particularly in these commodity currencies, and you can see it in other things as well, yeah. uh, five-year, five-year forwards, in terms of potentially inflation moving in there. And so you have two trends that are really, um, you think, uh, things to watch going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you know, within the equity landscape, kind of using the S&P as a trigger, if we're above 3,000, you know, you continue to be long equities, and that's largely been our view. But the question is, where do you want to be long within the equity landscape, right? And I think that continues to be growth over value, 
largely speaking, I think that continues to be large over small, right? Because those same inflation dynamics are going to disproportionately impact in a negative way, in my opinion, small cap stocks relative to uh, relative to the large and mega cap stocks, right? So that's so I think you have to kind of drill down and take it one step further than just I'm bullish equities. Well, like right. in this environment, what are you bullish at in within the equity landscape? And what are the trends telling you about the potential for the macro backdrop? And I think it continues to point to slowing global growth, right? Across asset classes, we're getting that message. And I think we're at an inflection point as it relates to the potential for rising inflation. That was a really good, Dan. I really enjoyed talking to you. A good mix of fundamental and uh, you know the MBA side, if you will, and your CMT side on the technical. I, I'm really happy that you came back on and, and talked to us and hope that we have the chance to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.